Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 11th, 2022, from what seems to be a perpetually sunny but chilly San Francisco. The headlines remain dominated by um, the abortion issue in the United States, the latest update on the New York Times a few minutes before we went live today is that uh, the Senate will vote on abortion rights. It will be a symbolic vote. Um, the Democratic Senate will knows that they will lose the vote, but I guess it's an attempt to put themselves on record in terms of this issue. Of course, it's all bound up in the Supreme Court and this supposed attempt by the court to overturn Roe versus Wade um, amongst the most important decisions ever made by the Supreme Court. Um, we forget in all our legal analysis that this is, of course, a very human story. We did a show last year with Joshua Prager, a very distinguished, um, a talented American journalist on the family row, all about the Roe family that led to the court case. Uh, he called it an American story. And perhaps the one court case, and I'm anything but a legal expert, but the one Supreme Court case that rivals Roe versus Wade in terms of its significance and in terms of its symbolic association as an American story is the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 to essentially end racial segregation in public schools. Uh, we're not talking abortion today. We're talking education, but they're kind of connected, I guess, in some ways. My author today is um, not just a, a writer, but also a very influential figure in uh, education politics, Leslie T. Fenwick. She has a new book out, Jim Crow's Pink Slip, The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher Leadership. Uh, and like the family Prager in a slightly different way, this is an American story. And uh, Leslie is very much of an American figure. Leslie, welcome. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Uh, I don't want to make this a, a conversation about Roe versus Wade because that's something else and it's not your expertise. But do you think of any similarities um, in terms of Roe versus Wade and Brown versus Board of Education? You're an expert in education, not in abortion, but you've done a lot of work and you've spent a lot of time thinking about the significance of the Supreme Court. Does this raise ghosts for you currently, given what's happening in American politics? I think each of the stories is about liberation. So certainly we don't really talk about Brown uh, in the language of the, the litigators who came up with the new jurisprudential theory to get that nine person, all white and male Supreme Court, those Supreme Court justices to decide in favor of equality and expansion of opportunity. Remember, that was a huge intellectual and moral victory. And when you read some of the 
writings of Marshall and others about the decision, what were they seeking to do? They were seeking to eliminate white supremacy. Now we frame it in the language of educational opportunity, educational equity, but they were seeking those giants, Marshall, Nabrit, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, they were seeking to uh, you know, eliminate, uh, decimate white supremacy. I think the Roe decision is also about liberation and freedom to choose um, in the case of Brown for Blacks and all other Americans, and in the case of Roe, uh, self-determination uh, by women over their health and bodies. So I think they're both about liberation. Leslie, much has been written, of course, many books, thousands, tens of thousands of articles have been written about the significance of the Brown versus Board of Education. Um, decision much has been written about Jim Crow why did you need why did you feel you needed to write a book about Jim Crow's pink slip about the enduring I guess legacy of racism in education even after the Brown versus Board decision so um, one of the things I make clear Andrew in the book is this is not another book about Brown even though I'm talking about what happened to black principals and teachers after Brown. Um, one of the things that led me to write this book is all of the conversation, the policies, the funding, the attention around the teacher of color pipeline and the underrepresentation of teachers of color in the nation's um, educator workforce. So we have about 3.2 million teachers and about 7% are African-American. And I kept hearing this myth about why there was an underrepresentation of Blacks in the teaching force. And it was just quite frankly kind of driving me crazy because I knew it wasn't, it was ahistorical. The analysis was not correct. It didn't reflect the historic record. And what that meant to me is that the more we repeated that myth, the less likely our interventions, whether they were policy or funding or recommendations for programs that prepare teachers and other educators, we were going to continue to be off of North Star. And so that's kind of all A. And, and all of B, the second reason, um, is that I really thought as I read the historical record that uh, these individuals, these men and women who were purged from the public education system, their story needed to be told. And it had not yet been told. Yeah, and, and that's how I... Um... That, that, that in, a, in a funny kind of way, I mean, they're very different kinds of books, but the family row and uh, Jim Crow's pink slip in that sense are quite similar. Um, Leslie, you've obviously spent many, many hours researching this, but many of our viewers and listeners won't be as familiar. Perhaps you can give us a snapshot of the education system, particularly from a, an African-American teachers and admi administrators perspective pre-Brown and then post-Brown and explain the core premise in your book. So um, let's talk pre-Brown first. We know that there were 17 dual system states operating segregated education systems from uh, first grade 
Right. Mostly, in the, of course, in the South, it doesn't come as a great surprise, uh, the Old South. which The Old South, but, but one of the reasons that I'm careful not to just indict the South, uh, these states ranged from as far north as Delaware, uh, Maryland, all the way down to Florida, and as you're showing on the map, to Oklahoma and Texas. But keep in mind that states that we traditionally view as quite liberal, uh, California, Ohio, Indiana, there were statutes in those states um, that allowed for uh, racially segregated education, not just from first grade through high school, but also colleges and universities. So undergraduate preparation, graduate preparation, professional school rep uh, preparation. So we were operating an apartheid system in at least 17 states, uh, as far north as Delaware, southern states, as you indicate, Andrew, and also um, border states. And um, so there had been a number of cases prior to Brown, leading up to Brown saying, you know, this isn't right. Um, black students uh, and taxpayers and families and Americans, not all Americans are getting their fair share from the public education system. In those 17 dual system states, mind you, blacks are paying taxes, but not allowed to attend. Uh, uh, and, um, uh... Uh, Leslie, how separate and equal in theory, at least um, according to the the Plessy decision from 1896, which Brown overturned, but of course there wasn't very much equality. How much more underfunded was the African-American school system versus the white one? Yeah, significantly underfunded. And each state had its own equation. But you could generally say um, for that time period, let's say we were spending uh, $4 for the education of every white child, there would be 30 cents being spent for every black child, which means that in that that's segregated... astonishing. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that's a 10% of the money uh, spent on, on a single white child would be spent on a single black child. And in some cases, far less than that, which meant then that the availability of high caliber uh, school facilities and the pervasiveness of, of high quality school facilities um, wasn't, it just wasn't available. So you didn't have as many schools and the schools that were available were underfunded. We see some of those trends even now. So, and, uh, just to jump in again, uh, Leslie, um, I assume that just as the students were completely segregated, the same is true of the teachers. Only black teachers could teach in black schools and only white teachers could teach in white schools. That's exactly correct. And so the black schools had black principals and teachers, other staff and students. And the same was true for the white schools. And you call your book, Jim Crow's uh, Pink Slip. Um, is this about the pre-Brown world or the post-Brown world? Or, or, or are you suggesting in an odd way that they're not that dissimilar? I'm suggesting in an odd way that they're not that dissimilar. And mainly I'm um, telling the reader that we're still living with fallout from white resistance to Brown after the decision. So once the decision occurs in 54, there's about 25 years of vehement and protracted white resistance to the law of the land. Yeah, and it's it called, was, um, it was mm -hmm. formerly known as massive resistance that was mm -hmm. coined by Harry Byrd of Virginia to resist the decision. 
Yes. And so these were legislative acts, um, state legislative acts. They were acts that involved uh, local governance, um, also turning budgets away from uh, the public schools right at a time when the schools were desegregating. But the reason the book is called Jim Crow's Pink Slip is Jim Crow is that term that we use to refer to uh, a series of racist policies, violent policies, constricting, uh, racially constricting policies and laws um, that were pervasive through the 17 states and in other um, areas of the country as well. And the pink slip is an old reference. I don't know if any of your listeners under 30 would even think about pink slips the way we traditionally have, which is you were fired from a job and, and given a pink slip to say this is your last day and you can move on. And so the combination of those terms um, informed my title for the book. So it's Jim Crow issuing this pink slip to Black principals and teachers after Brown. Um, the decision did not say uh, close all the Black schools and fire all the Black principals and teachers. What the decision said, what the Brown decree said, is that racial segregation had no place in American public education. And later society, the, the uh, decision was interpreted to have more broad uh, influence in American society. It also said, and we rarely quote this, it Brown and other dis legal decisions which came after it, and chapter four of my book examines all of those legal decisions that say you will not achieve desegregation unless you desegregate three bodies, uh, faculty, staff, and students. And yet um, in mid-June in 1971, I think I've identified the exact day, actually, June 15th in 1971, we turn our attention as a country away from the mandate to integrate faculty and staff and focus exclusively on students and reaching some uh, ratio of black to white students um, in the nation's public schools. Um, I trace this history um, from post-Brown resistance to the decision um, to today's underrepresentation of Blacks in uh, the educator workforce. So as I said earlier, about 7% of the nation's 3.2 million teachers are Black. About 11% of our 90,000 principals are Black. And less than 3% of the nation's 13,800 superintendents are Black. And this is troubling for a whole host of reasons. One, historically, you know, you will march uh, through the book um, and see this as an unfolding story. I really wrote it so that you wouldn't put it down. Um, and there are personalities in the book, you know, Martin Luther yeah, King. Yeah, so it's very much of an American King. story in that sense, I think. But um, the, one of the tragedies of this purging of these generations of Black educators is they were more uh, academically qualified, credentialed, and professionally experienced than the whites who replaced them. So, um, in 1971, there were a series of Senate hearings about the displacement of Black principals. And this is the most comprehensive resource, the transcripts from these Senate hearings about this phenomenon, which had become so pervasive and dissettling that it reached the ears of Congress. So um, in those transcripts, which are over, I would say, a thousand pages, 
and constitute the primary resource for my work. Um, you see that the states were asked to provide rosters of Black educators and the individuals who replace them. So let's say I'm just going to, you know, make something up here. Oklahoma, uh, John Doe, a Black bachelor's degree, Fort Valley State University, which is uh, an HBCU, historically Black college or university, master's degree, Columbia University, five years teachers, teacher, 10 years principal replaced by uh, uh, John Smith, um, certificate, University of Georgia, two years teacher, zero years principal. So one of the questions, chapter two is probably my favorite chapter of the book. And why is it my favorite chapter? Because I outline how these generations of Black principals and teachers became more academically credentialed um, than their white peers, especially in an era of extreme um, racial uh, constriction, racial segregation, and racial violence. So, 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 so Leslie, um, you're really making the same argument that many others have made, Michelle Alexander, for example, in the new Jim Crow, that not enough change, that the, the, the racism that was endemic pre-Brown has essentially been maintained within the education system. Is that fair? I think that's that that's fair. It's it's the larger argument that I'm making is that um, these were individuals who played by the rules, who because their state was racially segregated, they attended HBCUs, which were created for African Americans uh, to gain a college education. But if those individuals um, if those HBCUs did not offer graduate or professional degrees in the fields that African-Americans desired, the state would issue, and this is what has not been documented in the literature, the state would issue something called Negro tuition scholarships. There was slightly different language by state. And these educators, these Black educators, continued playing by the rule, took those scholarships, and where did they go for their graduate education? They primarily went to about six institutions that happen to be among the nation's most um, prominent, uh, most prestigious and distinguished. They went primarily to Columbia University, New York University, University of Chicago, uh, University of Michigan, The Ohio State, Iowa, and University of Pennsylvania. They did what I call in the book an academic migration. They gained these credentials and returned to the South um, to teach in segregated schools that, yes, were underfunded, yes, oftentimes were in dilapidated buildings, but they were not inferior because there had been an investment by the Black community, by educate Black educators themselves, to hold excellent credentials and bring the combination of their HBCU education and their Northern or Midwestern or even um, Western education at predominantly white institutions back to those schools. And this is how Black educators very early on, you know, um, as early as 1926, 40% um, of Black educators have bachelor's degrees. And then by about 1965, um, 
more African-American teachers and principals hold um, bachelor's and master's degrees. So these were the country's most credentialed and professionally experienced educators, and yet they were still captured by the arc of race madness. And this is something that no other book has kind of... So Leslie, just to be clear, these people then, they couldn't get jobs, they were fired, or they were underpaid, and they were forced to teach at poorly um, financed schools. What's the... I'm so, not entirely clear what the core argument is. So the, the, the core argument is that the country lost its mo two generations, at least, of its most credentialed educators in this purposeful decimation of the Black educator pipeline after the Brown decision. So the Brown decision comes down, and immediately Black teachers and principals throughout the 17 dual system states begin receiving letters saying, due to the Brown decision, Right. Ooh, this is the pink slip. This is the this, this is, is the pink. Yes. Yes. pink. So, what, yes. so what did these people do then? They got other jobs. This is this is a really great question. So chapter four deals with some of what they did, which is they filed uh, lawsuits, and uh, the 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 Hercules in this equation is the NAACP, which comes to the rescue um, in litigating these cases on behalf of black principals and teachers as they're seeking to get their jobs back. Now, here's the interesting thing, Andrew. So as early as 1952, um, Thurgood Marshall, whom we know as the nation's first African-American Supreme Court justice, at the time of, uh, he litigates, he's among the litigators for Brown. And um, in fact, I think that his record before the Supreme Court still stands. He successfully litigated 29 out of 31 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't think that's been beaten by anyone to date. But um, he began, he's an attorney with the NAACP at the time. And as early as 1952, he begins thinking about, will Black principals and teachers lose their jobs if Brown is successful? Not because they should but because of the stain and strain of, of white racism, anti-Black racism, um, will they be purged from the system? So he's thinking about this. And I think it's like 1953, 1952 or 53, he writes a memo. And I remember holding a copy of this memo that I'd gotten from the Moreland Spingarn Center at Howard University. Um, he writes a memo um, to some Northern philanthropists seeking funding for the NAACP's teacher information and security department. So Thurgood Marshall is establishing this department and he's requesting money to fund it because he knows that these Black principals and teachers are going to need, um, the, need support, um, legal support to either fight cases where they've been illegally fired, dismissed, or demoted, um, or to prevent that from happening. Leslie, some people might watch, be watching this or listening and thinking, well, Leslie made it. You're, you're a very distinguished educator. You teach at West Point. You have all sorts of PhDs and other advanced degrees. Um, you're obviously African-American. Things might not have been entirely fair, but surely things have changed since the age of Jim Crow. Would you reject that? I mean, are there 
anecdotes in your own story that underline the profound injustice still defining the American education system? I know it's a bit trite to personalize these things, but but you are an example of a very, very successful educator. Biden even considered you, I think, as his secretary of education, and you were just, um, uh, he, he, he just uh, appointed a series of, um, a series of uh, prominent figures to Air Force and military uh, academy boards, including yourself. So what does your life tell us about this, your educational life? Well, you know, this is this is a really interesting question. So I don't think that the case can solely be made um, on my experiences. What I was trying to do was to share a history and um, to suggest to the reader that you know what we always hear, which is history is not dead, that's A, and then B, mm. that um, we're still living with some histories that we don't know. So again, you know, when I look at the underrepresentation of blacks in the American teaching force, um, I wanted to make sure that the narrative that's being told about why that is so is accurate. Because you know, if you I, I hate to use this analogy, um, but I will if a nuclear bomb falls, there's, there's fallout from that. There's, there's, you know, radioactive fallout from that, that can affect people for generations, for 50 years, a hundred years. And one of the things that I'm saying in the book is that this history is affecting us today. And there's so many histories that we're living with that we don't know we're living with. And so because we don't know we're living with them, we may, as policymakers and researchers and social commentators, um, reference reasons that are not accurate. I was really, probably, there were two very special moments to me when I was writing this book. Um, one was holding that, a copy of that memo from Thurgood Marshall that said, that essentially said, Marshall saying, I know this is going to be a problem given the racial history of the country and these states in particular. And how can we protect these fine educators? Not only were they academically credentialed, remember, they had traveled north to get um, their education at the institutions that I named their graduate education, Return South. So they also had an experience with integrated education that they brought back south. These black principals and teachers were largely responsible in the South for establishing NAACP chapters, for pushing for voting rights. So, you know, now today we talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about anti-black racism. These individuals prior to Brown, you know, a step out of Reconstruction in the early 1920s through Brown and after Brown, were fighting for these things that we still are fighting yeah, I think it's an important, um, the book really does reveal the human, many, I'm not sure if they're tragic stories, but very troubling stories of, uh, as you say, the, the pink slip that resulted in Brown. Uh, we did a show um, last year with another education writer, Derek W. Black, about the crisis in the American schoolhouse uh, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. It's not a book about race. It's a book about the essential looting of the public education system in contemporary America. 
I'm not sure whether you would necessarily agree with Black's premise, but um, is there a connection between the increasingly underfunded nature of public education and what you write about in Jim Crow's Pink pink Slip? So I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned my colleague and friend, uh, Derek Black's book. In fact, um, we both presented uh, in in, uh, February at an national conference for the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. He was the opening keynoter and I was the closing keynoter. Wow, and excellent. We were, and we've known each other since our days at Howard. Uh, uh, Derek, prior to going to South Carolina, was at Howard University in the School of Law. So we've always had lots to talk about and have compared notes in our book. I'm so glad that you used the word looting. My book, too, is about looting. Um, uh, I think Black's book looks at the current underfunding, how that uh, expands, you know, um, these uh, educational opportunity to learn fissures that fall out among class and race lines. My book says that um, the public education system was looted by the deliberate actions which are outlined in the book. I I talk about this in great detail, even though I'm not talking about it, uh, the specific mechanisms now. But how that decimation of that Black principal and teacher pipeline led us to where we are, which is an underrepresentation um, of Blacks. More broadly, we there are other stories that are related to the underrepresentation of other teachers of color in the nation's teaching force. And why is this important? You know, our, our schools are the world's most racially, ethnically, linguistically and culturally diverse, right? Um, We serve about 55 million children. And there is a sense that um, the models of intellectual authority who are teachers and the models of leadership authority who are principals should reflect some of that dynamism, that, that dynamism that is uniquely American. Um, so that's that's kind of a, a moral or philosophical argument for diversity. But also we have about 50 years of research showing that um, Black teachers influence the academic and social outcomes for Black students and increasingly other groups of students. So Black students who are assigned Black teachers are more likely to graduate high school less likely to be misplaced in special education, more likely to be tested for gifted education. And we have some um, standardized test data that show that black teachers achieve certain outcomes on um, in reading and math with black students. So hold on, are you suggesting then? No. Correct me if I'm wrong. Resegregating education? No, No, not at all. Not at all. I I knew you were going to go there. Um, I couldn't resist. I I am not, um, by any stretch of the imagination, um, encouraging the resegregation of public schools, nor am I talking about race matching children. I don't think that's appropriate. I'm a former K-12 teacher myself. What I do think is appropriate is that we have quantitative data to show that when we diversify our nation's educator workforce, there are benefits that accrue to all students, particularly students who in many ways have been left behind. So my citation in the book and now about 
those data, those academic and social benefits that accrue are encouraging more diversity. I don't think, or I do think that the goals of racial equality and education equity are like conjoined twins. We must, they, they if you cut off one, you yeah. threaten. Uh, the it's a nice image. Uh, Leslie, let's end. Let's, let's fast forward to today. Um, Biden had or has a plan for educators, students, and our future. Uh, you didn't get the job. Uh, Miguel, uh, Miguel uh, Cardona got the job as education secretary. Uh, is Biden doing a good job? Is Cardona doing a good job in terms of education? If you'd have got the job, would you have done things differently? <laughs> well, you know, to, the... put it, to put it bluntly. Um either no matter who's the secretary right you're you're acting on behalf of the president and one of the things that was impressive to me about the Biden administration agenda in, on education is that my research and my experience as a practitioner not only in K12 but in higher ed resonated with that plan so you know there've been we've had other presidents democratic and republican when i look at their education plan I would have um, large criticisms, for instance, um, excessive investment in charter schools or in um, non-certified teachers. The Biden plan doesn't have these features to it. And so when I look at it relative to K-12 and higher education, I really feel a simpatico with the plan and believe whoever serves as secretary of education is an envoy you know, for the president. Uh, and finally, I can't resist asking you about this. I'm guessing uh, you're not a big fan of DeSantis in Florida and his his um, encouragement of quote unquote, at least according to Joe Biden, book burning. Uh, he's hit back. There's lots and lots of controversy about banning books in schools. What's what are your thoughts on this? And, and is there anything in um, is there anything in Jim, in Jim Crow's pink slip that might educate us about this current very troubling controversy about what students in American high schools and other schools uh, can and can't read? I feel like I need to write down my re remarks to this one, Andrew. Um, I'm trying to organize my thoughts here. So there, there are three things I would say here. One, there, prior to all of this, there were about six states, Florida being one, that passed uh, legislation in the 90s mandating the teaching of Black history in, in the state of Florida. The state statute, which I think is 1004H. Now, the only reason I know this is my youngest brother is a professor of ed policy like me, and he did his dissertation on this. Six states um, passed legislation mandating the teaching of Black history pre-colonial and pre-invasion African history and Black American history um, in all schools in Florida. So this has been legislation on the books for quite some time. Florida is not the only state, there are others. And so I find it ironic or interesting that this comes around um, now. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say um, is that we know, and I do say this in Jim Crow's Pink Slip, that um, largely, the curriculum in terms of content, imagery, and authorship is white. 
So anything that we can do to diversify the curriculum so that it reflects the myriad cultural, linguistic, uh, racial histories that make up our country is a good thing for the, the very diverse multicultural student body. And we've seen links in research between that multicultural curriculum and student outcomes. Um, there's, there is research. The third, third thing I would say is a story. This story is not in the book, but it is in a Washington Post opinion piece that I wrote. And I'll tell it in 30 seconds. Um, I'm a member of the scholarly advisory committee for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is the, the world's third busiest museum. So the Louvre is the first, the second is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, and the third busiest museum in the world is, is the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. The Scholarly Advisory Committee is that group of 11 scholars that helps the curatorial staff determine the intellectual agenda and exhibition content for the museum. So in 2017, I led a tour of the museum with that year's class of Rhodes Scholars. And as you know, as in your listening audience knows, Rhodes Scholars are identified as the world's best and brightest um, college graduates. And they go off to um, Oxford University and earn master's and doctoral degrees. <clears throat> so as part of their Bon Voyage, uh, prior to their Bon Voyage weekend out of DC, I led a tour about 32 of the Rhodes Scholars came on that tour. And when they met me in Heritage Hall, which is the big opening space on the <clears throat> main floor of the museum, um, they were so excited. I mean, these are young people, you know, 22, 21, uh, very excited to be there because this was at a time where it was difficult to get in the museum, it was very popular. As we proceeded on the tour, I saw their excitement, this palpable excitement become kind of quizzical, like, wait a minute, I didn't know that. And I then saw that quizzical demeanor turn to anger. Now the anger, it was a soft anger. The anger was not at what they were learning. It was not at what they were learning. It was at the, it was directed at the fact that they had never been taught this information while they were in elementary school, middle school, high school, or college. And they were very articulate with me about um, their resentment that they were supposed to be among the best and brightest, certainly the brightest, had never been taught this information. It was very disconcerting to them. And so I say, if the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and the material that's in that museum was as meaningful to Rhodes Scholars, certainly we as the more mature adults can find age appropriate ways to introduce and teach students the racial, racially triumphant history of this country hmm. and the racially disturbing history of this country. You, you, you put that very well, uh, Leslie. Uh, finally, um, again, congratulations on the new book, Jim Crow's Pink Slip, The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher leadership. It is now uh, a story which has been told by Leslie T. Fenwick. What else, Leslie, 
in addition to visiting, if you're lucky enough to get a ticket, the, Miss, the Smithsonian African American Museum in Washington, D.C. I was actually just there a couple of weekends ago, heard a speech by the guy now in charge. I didn't go to get into the museum. My wife did. Um, what else should people be reading? Any books wow. on your, um, I mean, uh, briefly, because I know you're yeah. particularly erudite, but maybe one <laughs> or two books that uh, um, really have caught your attention, perhaps particularly in terms of educating Americans about all of, of all colors and genders and sexualities about what really happened in this country. James D. Anderson's Education of Blacks in the South and anything by James Baldwin. Good stuff, Leslie. And finally... Uh, Who's in charge in May 2022? Who runs the world? Leslie T. Fenwick, the author of <laughs> Jim Crow's Pink Slip and one of America's leading educational writers and thinkers and policymakers. Wow. Um, my religious tradition says the creator, God, the source, the one, the great spirit runs the world and the multiverses. I think we need poets and alchemists to run the world on this end, on the temporal side. I think we need alchemists to, to keep stirring up chaos, to create new balance, and we need poets to run the world. 